the West, a Middle-Earth SVG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles, and with me today are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. In today's episode, we will be talking about Glorfindel, Lord of the West. And in our open topic, we will be talking about types of playstyles and give examples of each of the playstyles in the game. You can find all of our army lists over on Facebook. Just search Into the West podcast and you'll be able to find more content and also all the lists that we use in this episode. So Glorfindel is found in the Rivendell army list and he is 145 points base. He has the elf keyword, uh, Rivendell keyword, infantry and hero keywords. He's a hero of valor and he has movement six, fight seven, strength four, defense five, three attacks, three wounds, courage seven, Three Might, Three Will, and Three Fate. He comes with a Elven-made hand-and-a-half sword. And he has four Heroic Actions. He has Heroic Resolve, Heroic Strike, Heroic Strength, and Heroic Challenge. And he has two War Gear options. He has the Armor of Gondolin for 15 points, which is um, heavy armor. While he's wearing the Armor of Gondolin, monster models may not target Glorfindel with brutal power attacks. And he also has Asphaloth, which is a horse with a movement of 12. While riding Asphaloth, Glorfindel also gains Fleetfoot. And he has six special rules. So he has Expert Rider, Horse Lord, Terror, Willing Creature, Lord of the West, which allows him to re-roll 1d6 for the duel and the two-wound roll. And the last special rule he has is Unbending Resolve. Glorfindel always counts as having the Fortify Spirit magical power cast on him even if he has zero will. So out of the four of us, I think Ian's probably the one that's used Glorfindel the most. Yeah, I, I think we were just saying that I'm surprised we're finally reviewing him because it feels like we've talked about him in every single episode because of Ian. <laughs> well, yeah, it's probably come up a lot, like this uh, this profile at least, and then the, the, the list I'm going to talk about later. But I... <laughs> I don't know about you guys. I, I just I come kind of thinking back to when I first opened up the uh, this book and looking through all the big elven lords, and I think he was kind of the one that I was like the the least impressed with. It was just kind of like oh whatever, like he's he's got the Lord of the West that's pretty cool and like the magic resistance is cool, but like Elrond and Gilgad look kind of look better off my first impressions. And then after having played with him for a while, I was like oh damn, this guy's like really good. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think. He has the least kind of like fluff around him, so I think the word I would use to describe him is he's like a more of a lean profile because he doesn't have as many like big flashy special rules, and he's also quite a bit cheaper than like Elrond or Gilglad. So I I think he's definitely for me the most competitive option out of the four Lords of the West. We've already talked about Kelborn and why he's not kind of up to par, but comparing with Elrond and Gilglad, I think he might be the most competitive option. They kind of have different roles in the army, but he's probably my favorite out of the out of the three of them. Yeah, I mean, he's just so well-rounded. And I think, at least in our local meta, I feel like he is the most common Lord of the West that we do see because of his points efficiency. And yeah, I mean, he doesn't really have a weakness. Like, I guess you can say he's not as good at killing, but I mean, he is still a mounted hero with Lord of the West, so... You're still rolling, like, you know, four attacks doubled 
and then you get a re-roll one. You know, that's that's still a lot of hitting power, so. Glorfindel, I think I, I said this when we decided on the profile for this episode. He's really Rivendell's kind of premier allying hero as well. He is a hero of valor, so he can ally with convenient allies in order to make that list work. I think his only real knock, like you said, Richard, is that he's strength four, and he doesn't have any real phenomenal combat special rules beyond Lord of the West. So he's considered like combat average, but combat average, four attacks on the charge, eight strikes, knocking down, re-rolling one die. I don't care that he's only strength four. That's a lot of dice. You're going to do quite a bit of damage. You always give him armor of Gondolin and Asphaloth. So, you know, you've got the mobility, you've got everything there, and even all kitted out, he's cheaper than Elrond and Gilgalad. So, you know, he's my personal favorite. Yeah, and and about the killing power, I mean, we've talked about this numerous times, and we'll see this in the list today, too, where uh, three out of the four of us pair him with Kirdan. Like, the Enchanted Blades just kind of covers that weakness, and Kirdan is, like, a really solid hero in the Rivendell list, too, so you can shore up that typical like weak spot. And I mean, we can't really say he's bad in combat because he's got that fight seven. And having that fight seven is kind of a critical fight value because it kind of allows you to pull off the strategy of where you hero combat and then you just go straight at a lower fight hero if they didn't strike up that turn. So you kind of force their hand to either strike up early or you just take them out for free. So I think that fight seven is quite valuable, like a lot better than a fight six and obviously a fight five. Yeah, 100 percent. It just adds a lot of, I guess, safety to the way you can play him. Enemy heroes are going to be forced to strike up against you. And if you think you can take that hit, you can just let that go. And then you're up on the might later in the game. Or like you're saying, you can do the uh, the little bulging tactic. It is just like super handy. The other thing I would say is kind of undervalued is or maybe like not as obvious is the uh, the horse lord. Having Horse Lord with three points of fate is is really good. It usually takes uh, at least like two wounds to get Asphaloth down, right? Unless you're really, really paranoid about uh, him getting wounded later in the game. And yeah, when he's on that move 12 horse, wow, like he can, <laughs> he's got a lot of mobility on that. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been surprised by that move 12 a couple times where I played Yui and I remember and I was like measured the 10 inches. I was like, OK, yeah, you're out of range. Like none of your Rivendell Knights or your heroes can get me. And then you just charge in the same turn. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it can be pretty crazy. And especially if you uh, you pair it with a heroic combat. So uh. you just charge into something. And then just run off to the other side of the board. I did that once, and I basically moved across an entire table in, like, two turns because of heroic combating. Just and, to get him to reposition. It's it's so handy. And he has fleet foot, right? So, like, you're just running through forest, too. Like, you don't care. 24 <laughs> inches through forest, no problem. Yeah, in my experience against Glorfindel, wait, what are usually the final thoughts I have right before losing four troops? And I, I feel like with him, you're really not afraid to put him in any situation. You've got the move 12 horse, which, I mean, move 10 horse is good enough. But move 12, being able to move like a fell beast, he can run away and be out of range. You don't have to really worry too much. You can just put him anywhere. I just want to talk about the armor of Gondolin for a second. So it protects him from rending and from being hurled. But there are certain monster brutal power attacks where it wouldn't be targeting him. 
So he would still be wounded or knock prone by a monster throwing a model at him or let's say like an end picking up a model beside him and then bludgeoning him. Right. He could still be targeted. He just he just can't be like selected as the model to do the power attack on. So it's not like complete immunity. Yeah, it's I find that special rule sounds really nice. And then you don't end up using it a ton. Like it doesn't really come into play. I mean, it's only five points, so it's not terrible. Yeah, because heavy armor is ten points, so you're paying an additional five. It's yeah, it's good to have, I guess. But like, yeah, it's it's like a nice little thing to have, but it's like whatever. It kind of feels to me, honestly, like the rules writers were like, oh, the armor had a special rule last edition. We should give it a special rule this edition. And they just kind of gave it that. And it's like, yeah, generally with a 12 inch movement, you're going to be the one to decide if you're going to fight the monster or not. So, yeah. um, And the other thing is you don't really want to have him fighting like big monsters or like enemy heroes. Like he, he can do that and he can fill that role well. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. because of his low damage output, if he comes up against somebody, even though they're like way less points, if they can wound him on fives or fours, he might lose that 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 fight, right? I wouldn't say he's terrible hurt. against monsters because he does have heroic strength. If the monster can't strike up or can't beat that fight seven and you feel safe with Glorfindel's fight seven, you could go up to strength six or seven and actually kill that monster in one turn. It's possible. Yeah, like that that is true, but it's not like... I feel like it's more efficient to use him to kind of fight like the mid-tier heroes where you know you're going to outclass him a lot because it puts your opponent at more of a disadvantage. Then he should be allowed to like kill them pretty easily just because they don't have a ton of wounds or if it's, he needs sixes, they only have like two wounds and he can just kill them really quickly. Because if he gets yeah. stuck up against something that has like four wounds and he needs sixes to wound, it can take him a long time to get there if, without spending might and stuff, right? So where would you um, put him at for our ratings? Ooh, uh, I'd probably put him at about a nine out of ten. I think, uh, well, maybe an eight and a half, just because of his 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 points cost is a lot. Like you're paying for what you get, and he doesn't really buff your troops at all, which is kind of what I look for when you're getting up to that kind of like really really heavy points cost. But it is really really solid, and I don't remember who said it earlier, but yeah, he is just really reliable. So if you want a reliable big elf lord, I'd say go for him every time. Okay. I'm actually going to disagree with you a little bit there. I think that pretty much everything in his profile gets him to that specialized, like, he's a really specialized hero in the sense that he's really tough to bring down for his points cost and also just really good defensively. Unbending resolve scales really well at high points because you you'll, you get more and more magic involved in the game when, when you go up in points. So I think he's, like, good at any points level. And then, like we talked about, Horse Lord, Fleet Foot, uh, Movement 12, all those are r- really good for when you want to just throw him at a mid-tier hero and just take him down. And he's also just a really good leader and really good for, like, allying. So I I think he's a 10 for me. Being a hero of Valor and being at least convenient alliance with every list, he's just uh, one of the top heroes that you can ally into a list. So I, I don't really see many heroes better so I think he deserves it. I I have to agree there. Like um, his just defensive capabilities are really really top tier, especially like in a lower points game. Like he's probably one of the best leaders you can have at the hero of valor slots, like of any list really. So I do really like him. I I it's harder for me to give him maybe a perfect ten on this one, just because 
there are lists in uh, Rivendell where you do decide to go with either a Gilgalad or an Elrond. In my opinion, the other two are a bit more niche, but they can do well or better than Glorfindel in certain situations. Like Gilgalad, even though he has his restrictions, he's very killy and he can bring fight six. And then Elrond has magic. So Glorfindel is, he's a bit more limited, but he's just all around really solid. So I would give him a 9.5. Yeah, I'm I'm moving along the same lines. There's, he's, to me, that premier hero for all situations for Rivendell. So I, I think you know, I've got to give him a 9.5 as well. Yeah, you guys, yeah, that's a fair point. I, I, feel, I feel like I might judge the, uh, the no extra bonuses to wound a bit too harshly, but I don't know. Let's just be, I am surprised that I have the lowest score out of everybody. Yeah, I, I, I just think he's super reliable. Like, if, when you think about Elrond, his foresight points are a little bit randomized, and Nature's Wrath doesn't always pay off. When you think of Yoglad, he's a beast, but he doesn't have horse lord so like a single deadly shot could get his horse while you can't really do that to glorfindel so glorfindel seems like really consistent compared to those two and cheaper so that's kind of what pushed him over the edge for me for the perfect score i i mean i see where you're coming from but what i mean by niche list is like i guess if you're trying to design your list in a certain way like when you build a last lions list sometimes you see like a Elendil and a Gilgalad pairing because just two combat monsters that will just kill you and you can basically only stop one and that's why I don't think you see Glorfindel like being paired with Numenor in that way you rarely see like uh, Glorfindel or Elendil because then it's a lot more easy to just target Elendil because you know Glorfindel doesn't have as much of a hitting power but yeah yeah I do agree with you for the most part I'd say most situations, Glorfindel probably fills the roles a little better. Okay, next we're going to move on to our army list of the day. And first up will be me. I've written a historical alliance with Glorfindel at 600 points. So I'm sure you guys remember, but back in episode three in our Gimli episode, I had the first minor hero of the show. And I tried allying Fellowship and Rivendell horribly and here is my um, second attempt <laughs> so i have first uh, the leader uh, glorfindel with armor of gondolin and asphaloth and in his warband there are two high elf with shield and one high elf with shield and banner second warband is eladan and elrohir with heavy armor and on horses and in their warband there are two high elves with shield and then in the fellowship we have bormir of gondor with shield on a horse and then Frodo Baggins, naked, nothing, no war gear. So that comes to 600 points, 10 models, and 17 might. This is a PG-13 show, Charles. <laughs> no nudity, please. Hey, what happens in the Shire stays in the Shire. <laughs> okay, so... Just Frodo from the scene where he's like, it's over, Sam, they took the ring. It's, it's that Frodo. So this list is actually... Yeah, it might look pretty odd at first. You know, why don't I, I have an actual list with uh, full warbands and stuff? So the idea behind the list is when, whenever we see this historical alliance, it's usually you drop in like a Boromir into like a Rivendell list, right? Or you drop in like a Gandalf or something, a Rivendell list. But here I'm taking advantage of the Fellowship army bonus, which is as long as Frodo is alive, every member in the Fellowship is fearless 
and your entire army cannot break as long as Frodo is alive. So depending on the scenario, but in most cases, Frodo will just be immediately sent to the corner of the board where he won't be hunt down and he'll be fearless. So he will pass any courage test he will have to make while the rest of my army just try to win the game for me and they won't break unless Frodo is killed. The other situation is I can have Frodo close to the rest of the army and use his one ring as kind of like a bat swarm. If I did that, I would have to be really careful for him not to die. So 17 might, including Frodo's, I have four heroes with three attacks at 600 points, all mounted. And the idea is to just burn their might to kill as quickly as they can with heroic combats. And Glorfindel and Bormir should be able to knock out any or most heroes at that level. I think at 600 points, you'll mostly either see like one beat stick or, or like two medium-sized heroes. And I wouldn't have to worry about the warriors dying necessarily. They're kind of just there to shield. And in fact, I might even think about dropping their shields and putting spears on them in case the heroes get dismounted, then I would get support. But for now, I went with shields just to tie up certain targets. And yeah, that's kind of the idea of the list. What do you guys think? I just, I didn't realize that that fellowship rule also applied to the whole army. Like if you're including an ally, I never thought about that, which is really interesting. But then like the other thing that I noticed about your list, it's very carefully designed so that you have the uh, five heroes. Yeah, five heroes and then five troops. So even then, if you kill all the troops, you still have to get at least one of the heroes before you're broken. So that's, yeah, it's going to be really hard to break this list. Yeah, e- even if Frodo dies. Yeah. 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 So that's, yeah, that's that's really solid. I don't think you'll be giving up those VPs in, in most of the scenarios you play. Unless, I don't know, it's a random deployment one. But even then, you have so much might, you should be able to get everybody together. Yeah, that's really solid. This is just really gutsy. I'm looking at this list, and I'm just thinking... So much in this list at first, it immediately looks to me like you have a plainclothes Frodo who's just running around, and the whole strategy balances on the tip of a knife because, you know, if Frodo goes, it's over. The motto of the whole army is for Frodo. That's it. I like it because at 600 points, I really don't think you're going to come up against an army that can really handle Glorfindel, fully kitted out, the Elven Twins. Again, with the armor and the horses. And Boromir of Gondor. I mean, that's... Hold on. 15 might points? 15 might points. 15 might points and four very strong combat heroes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually pretty lethal. So I'm kind of just thinking about the, uh, <laughs> the troops that you have with shields. And basically the way I'm picturing it is like you said in your front line is just the heroes. And then your second line is this little block of warriors surrounding the banner. <laughs> so you make sure your heroes get the reroll, and then they just clump around and make sure nobody can kill the banner. Yeah. I mean, I haven't tested this, so I don't... I guess I'll be using them to tie up targets and maybe prevent my mounted heroes from getting trapped. So they'll be standing to like block certain like, control zones and stuff. And the way I'm thinking is the average army at 600 points is 25 to 30 models. So as long as these four heroes get maybe a couple hero combats off, the numbers will be pretty even by mid-game if if things go well for me. I, I guess it depends on the scenario, depends on the opponent too, but it, it's possible to pull off. A hundred percent agree. Like if you manage to do a hero combat with all of them in the first turn, 
and you get it off, like, you probably blow through a lot of might. Even if you blow through, like, eight might, two each, but you get eight kills in that first turn, I think it, that's almost the game in the bag. Unless the objectives are really funky. Like, that's that, that's so devastating. This yeah, it's just one of those things where even just two, maybe three really strong combat heroes, and if they go in into two troops each, and they all hurt at combat, and they go again, it really throws you back on your heels. And I think this list has more than a capability to do that. If you can defend Frodo well, <laughs> this list actually looks really competitive. I think it's a good Valor. I'm hesitant to give it Legend, because like I said, so much of the success really hinges on Frodo. My fear with him is that you haven't given him an Elven Cloak, and he's only moved four, so he, he gets stuck, could really be in trouble. Yeah, you know, the more I was like looking at this, and like the more we're talking about it, I'm liking this list more and more. And I can't attest to like uh, what I was saying about the hitting power. I had a similar list with Boromir Gondor and the Twins, and the hitting and power on that was really good, and that's at 800. So at 600, it, it's going to be absolutely devastating. Yeah, I, I I think I'm tending towards a Valor as well. It's it kind of I wasn't expecting that, but it's kind of sneaking up there for me. I don't know. I, it's it's kind of an unproven thing. Like we haven't seen a lot of these lists where you have like the balanced split between troops and heroes, so it doesn't matter if all the troops die. Plus, he has that extra backup from the uh, the Frodo thing. And he's got a banner in there, so he's not going to give up a lot of VPs. Plus, he's got Glorfindel as a leader, and Glorfindel's super hard to kill. So, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty solid Valor. Yeah, I, I'll keep it there. Yeah, I mean, this is a wild list. When I first saw a naked Frodo Baggins, um, I'm like, I don't know if this... I might have to give this a minor hero again, but after hearing your explanation... I mean, I was surprised by the army bonus that covers the entire army, too. I'm like, wait, did he just build a Barad-Dur list, but instead of Sauron, he has a naked Frodo? I mean, it's impressive, though. I think it is a gamble, though, because with the cost of Frodo at 60 points, him and Boromir, you could even upgrade that to, like, a Strider on horse, which would be quite the upgrade if you're going for one of those aggressive, like, hero smash strategies. But yeah, like I guess you're you're playing in a way that you're protecting your breakpoints just in case you lose one of your heroes as well. I think it really comes down to what kind of list you fight at this point. This list is not going to beat like a Rangers of Athelion or um, anything like that, just because you're just going to get shot down and you know shot down uh, Frodo and like the horses, vulnerable targets and such. So. I think I would have to give it a fortitude. The Strider idea is pretty good, though I think with Bormir you have more, like, burst, if you know what I mean, because you have, like, more might that you can just throw out. Yeah, I thought about giving Frodo some war gear, but the points were so exact, I would have to drop some elves, so I was like, ah, I wasn't sure if I wanted to bring my numbers down to below 10, so I just kept them at bare-bones Frodo. I think your only option would be to drop the banner then, but I kind of like its inclusion in this, just because you have enough bodies that you can keep on passing it off if the guy gets shot out, and it, it'll it be helpful for your rerolls. You might not keep it for your whole game, but just having those extra rerolls on your heroes is just, it'll be so valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if it might be easier to play to if, if he went all mounted, like drop a couple dudes for like Rivendell, maybe like two Rivendell knights and one with the banner. I would only be able to take one knight because they count as bows. Oh, right. Yeah. 
So, okay. So it turns out that the fellowship bonus where um, you're never broken as long as Frodo is alive, it only applies if your army is pure fellowship. So the idea of my army just goes straight down the drain. But as you guys said earlier, it's still kind of hard to break at 10 models, you know, five warriors and five heroes. If I knew this before this recording, I probably would have swapped Frodo for either like an Arwen or something, or I would just uh, combine Frodo and Bormir into Strider. But I don't know if this would change you guys' rating by much, because it's still the same strategy, and if I were to play this list, I would still kind of just hide Frodo somewhere. Uh, I still like... The shenanigans you can get into with Frodo having the ring, along with all these, like, heavy hitters. And then, like you said, yeah, you still have the five heroes, five warrior split, so breaking, if you're careful, you'll be all right. I don't know if this drops me down from a Valor to a Fortitude. It's definitely, like, a low Valor now, if it wasn't before. I don't think you, um... You hide Frodo, though, because you pay 60 points with him. I think you definitely try to use the ring to the full effect, and then you hide a a high elf warrior. That's probably a little bit more efficient to try to prevent the easy break. Yeah, yeah. So as long as um, I don't lose all of my warriors. Yeah, so any changes to uh, (laughs) to your uh, ratings of my list? It's still so hard to stop at 600, though. You have those four hitty heroes. I just really worry now what it would be like trying not to break while also trying to take take objectives. All right, I'll make the move. I'll downgrade this to a minor. I'll do it. Oh. Uh, See, I, just... I think that's too far, though. <laughs> so to balance Richard out, I'm going to keep mine at, like, a low value. <laughs> oh. You know, I... I like the concept, but I think in too many of the objective-based scenarios, this list would really have a hard time. You'd probably, like I said, have to split up, get overwhelmed, throwing Boromir out there and as many might points and as strong as he is. You know, if he gets swamped, one bad roll, down he can go as well. So I think I'm going to downgrade this to a minor as well. Oh, Alex dropping two ratings. Jesus. Wow, I know thinking, that bonus was uh... such a big deal. <laughs> I didn't think it was. I thought it was just kind of like like an extra rule, but yeah, it is a nice well, shenanigans. I also just noticed the twins don't have armor either. It's heavy armor for ten points, and then uh, horses for 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 twenty, right? Okay, I guess I guess they don't if it says one eighty. Yeah, or they only have their normal armor. So it's still at six hundred though. Like that's a lot of choppy choppy and a lot of might. I think he'll be okay. I think a minor is too hard. No, I think I think I think I'll give it a I'll give it a low fortitude. Fair enough. Okay, next we have Alexander's list, uh, pure 700 points, Rivendell. Okay, so my list isn't quite as wild as Charles. His was really interesting. Mine is very much a a standard pure Rivendell list. I really came down to two options. When I was building this list, I'll go over the other one as well, and we'll probably discuss it a bunch. So I have, of course, Glorfindel with the Armor of Gondolin and Asphaloth, six High Elf Warriors with Shield and Spear, one with Shield, Spear, and Banner, three Warriors with Elf Bow, two Rivendell Knights with Shield, 
High Elf Captain with Horse, Lance, and Shield. Seven High Elf Warriors with Shield and Spear. Three with Elf Bow. And then I have Kirdan. Four High Elf Warriors with Shield and Spear. And two with Elf Bow. 700 points even. 31 models. Six might. So I think the biggest weakness in this list, just looking at it, 700 points for Rivendell, is the fact that I only have the six might points. The real thing that I grappled with was either to go three warbands and have the Captain and Kirdan, or to have just one other warband and have Eladan and Elra here. But in the end, I took the extra few models to have the Rivendell Knights and have the magic at 700 points with Kirdan, I thought would be quite valuable. His ability to obviously make a, a fearless bubble or to make a terrifying bubble as well as obviously the ability to cast Enchanted Blades on Glorfindel and really makes Glorfindel a hot knife through butter. Aside from that, it's a pretty standard elf strategy. I've got, I think, near max bows. I think I'm one off, but I have, you know... <sighs> I know, right, Ian? I think I'm one off, but, uh, you know, I've got a good number of bows, which fits well with our army bonus if I want to sit back and have them all kind of huddled near Glorfindel. The two knights, two mounted heroes... I really like the High Elf Captain mounted with a shield and lance. You know, Fight 6, pretty capable of doing quite a bit of damage by itself. And then the Rivetal Knights to take objectives, mobility, move around, kind of pester and shoot at soft targets, charge when they have to. You know, a little bit of everything. So, basically, off the bat, the only real criticism I have is that you could drop, like, two of your High Elves of Spear and Shield and get one more Rivendell Knight in there. It wouldn't change your um, break point, and then your bow limit would be at max? No, I, I think he is at max bows. He has uh, 10 bows and 28 warriors. Does he have the 10 in this one? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sorry. You, but also, I think just having the extra knight adds just more tactical flexibility to you. And three kind of mounted guys that you can just run off the table if you have to, like in Reconnoiter and something like that, is kind of like the number you want, because then you can get the max VPs. But that's a really small thing. This is, yeah, it's a really solid, really, like... I mean, I... <laughs> It's a very standard kind of list, but it's really good, and it's really good for a reason, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it is really good. Like you are saying, yeah, you, you have a lot of different play styles you can do. You can basically do whatever you want with this, and 30 models or 31 models at 700 is perfectly fine. It's great, actually, considering uh, they're all high fight and high defense for the most part. Yeah, I, I don't know if I see any other real weaknesses besides the might, like you are saying, but you have the Aura of Dismay, which can help make up for that, so you're not too worried about calling tons of heroic moves. You only have one heroic strike, but you have a guy who's fight seven, and then the other one's fight six with an elven blade and a lance, so it's not like, yeah, you don't need it in the second strike in the list. It works fine. The extra damage from having the lance and the captain is worth it in the march, yeah. Yeah, really, really good. I I don't know if I would put it to a legend. I'm kind of flopping. I'm going to put it at, like, a high valor right now. I might change my mind, because I do that a lot. <laughs> I'll say that if I didn't see Alexander's name on the top of this list, I would think that Ian wrote it. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's almost as if a, a decade of experience playing against Ian has affected how I write Rivendell lists. It's, it's You're very saying much... Glorfindel in your dreams now, or should yeah. I say nightmares? Oh, Glorfindel, uh, Definitely nightmares. <laughs> It scarred him so much as soon as Kierdan went back on Made to Order. He was like, yep, snatched. <laughs> yeah, and then, then a what, few weeks back, uh, it was like, well, I missed out on getting it in the original run. It went out of stock pretty quick, but yeah, 
I'm like, email me for the Glorfindel, because I just want the mounted option. But yeah, um, the Twins would have brought me down, I think, to like a 28 model total. And I felt like with Rivendell, considering they are usually a low model count, I did want to boost that by a few. And I'm quite a big fan of the generic captain pick. So I, I thought, why not? It's, you know, it's less might, obviously, if I had had the Twins, but it was a decent trade-off. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, this is pretty uh, cookie-cutter Rivendell list. I don't have really any issues with it. I think Ian covered it all. The The weaknesses are very minor, but they're kind of in a list that they're covered quite well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think this definitely can compete for, uh, for the podium. Uh, give it, like, uh, I'll give this a legend. I think I think it makes the cut. I don't think Richard's ever given me a legend before, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hold on to that one. Oh, <laughs> I definitely have. Have you? oh yeah, that one time. There's Which one time one? you got you got a triple legend. You're a Faramir. Yeah. This oh Faramir, yeah, Faramir yeah, yeah, episode. Yeah. You and I you and I tied that one, didn't we? So I I understand your dilemma between the Captain and Kirdan or uh, Eldan and Elro here, because that's kind of like Rivendell's weakness when it comes to army building. They don't have a lot of mid tier um, hero options. Or not very many um, great ones. So I think you made the right choice because if you went Eldan and here, you would be lower in numbers and you wouldn't have Heroic March. In exchange, you have three more might and then way better like combat ability. So it's it's a bit of a toss up. I probably would have gone like your path as well. You, I guess the one weakness you have is whenever you take Heroic now, he's a he he's a bit of a problem in Maelstrom just because he's a minor hero now. And with only one might, if you get stuck rolling like a like a two, you know, he, the one thing you could offset that is to deploy him first. But still, it, he's not great in Maelstrom. And then, yeah, other than that, everything's been said. You know, it's it's a pretty standard list. I I like your picks, and uh, I'd probably put this at a at a, a hero valor. I think I agree with that on the the choice between Eldan and Elder here, and then these two smaller heroes. Just because if you go that way, you're kind of pigeonholed into a certain play style. Like, you have to get in there. You have to be aggressive with the heroes. So people are going to know what they're doing. And then at that kind of a points level, they're going to have a lot more to re- be able to react to that. Even though it is kind of like the triple threat thing. So It would be a bit similar to my list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, I guess it is kind of like the alternative way where you, you still go for the combat heroes and then you still get the troops in there. But uh, I don't know which one's better. I think this one's safer and is better to react a lot more. But if you know the kind of scenarios you're getting into and you're not going to be hurt by having a list like that, you could go the the Twins route. Yeah. Okay, the next list we have is Richard's list, which is a 800-point Impossible Alliance. Okay, so I have my leader in Glorfindel, Armor, Avondalin, Asphala, leading 10 High Elf Warriors with Shield and Spear, Four High Elf Warriors with Spear and Bow, one Rivendell Knight. And then in the second warband, of course, we have Kirdan leading four High Elf Warriors with Spear and Shield, and two High Elf Warriors with Spear and Bow. And then next, we have Bandaburst Took, so the only hobbit to ride a horse. I have a, a mounted Hitty Hero uh, leading eight Hobbit Militia, four Hobbit Archers, and then I have Will Whitfoot. So this one is the one that provides banner effect. He is leading another eight Hobbit militia and four Hobbit archers. And then next we have Holefoot Bracegirdle. So he's the one that gives uh, sheriffs plus one to wound. 
He's leading five Hobbit sheriffs, three Hobbit archers, and then last I have Robin Smallborough. So he's the Madrill of Hobbits, and he is leading seven Hobbit militia and two Hobbit archers. To a total of 68 models, nine might, 20 bows, with seven elf bows and 13 Hobbit bows. So I guess this is a typical Shire elf alliance where I have blinding light and enough elf bows to force the enemy, most armies, to come to me. And then once they're within that 18-inch range, then I have 13 Hobbit bows to kind of whittle down their numbers. So it is a more defensive-minded strategy. And I have 68 numbers. I have a banner effect to shore up once we get in combat. And I have some plus one to wound effects. Yeah, I have a second mounted hero in Vanderbrist Hook. I mean, he is only fight three, but he has heroic strike. And he Quote has unquote, attacks. combat hero. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's a <laughs> massive hitter. <laughs> when He does have a club, right? He does have a club, yes. Oh, never mind. I take it back. He is a combat beast. We stun him. <laughs> Heck yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you can't, you can't just be afraid of Glorfindel in this list. So, yeah, I, I mean, personally, I think it could work well with uh, Kyrdan's Aura of Dismay. And then there's just a lot of synergies and passive effects to make your average Hobbit a little better than you would think on paper. And that's, that's after um, being able to whittle their numbers down with uh, 20 bows. Yeah, what do you guys think? Oh, I, I guess I, I just wanted to add in because this is an impossible alliance, I'm mitigating some of the downsides by not taking a banner and just having the banner effect. And then I have enough high elves, and they are all with spears. So they're usually in the, the second line supporting the Hobbit, so you won't be able to take them down as easily. So I'm hoping that prevents me from breaking in most games. It's an interesting combo. 68 hobbits or 68 models at 800 points with a lot of them being hobbits I, I would expect the numbers to be higher since they're like so cheap but i guess you have quite a few elves in there so so that's why you're kind of in that range i was just reading up on robin smallborough and um his modifier only affects his own warband so you would probably want to max his uh, warband to 12 right just to, so that you can take advantage of uh, that for deployment but I like the Hobbit heroes that you picked. I always like the old Bilbo Baggins, just for the one ring. But then you kind of had a good reason for picking your all of the Hobbit heroes. So I don't know which one I would actually replace him with. Maybe Robin. Just to get that ring in there, it goes really well with Bannerbus, I think. Just because um, Bannerbus's fight value is a little lower. I do like the uh, mix, of, mix of elf bows and Hobbit bows, short bows. Your threat range is pretty good. I think, I can't remember which episode we were talking about, but I think we agreed that Blinding Light is kind of, it's kind of hard to use Blinding Light with Hobbits just because there's so many of them and it's nearly impossible to get them all within the Blinding Light. So I assume that the Blinding Light would be protecting the elves mostly. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we covered this with Matt. Um, I think the issue with Blinding Light is if you're going pure Hobbits and it's all 18-inch bows. But yeah, it, I would definitely be covering the high elf portion so I can win the shoot war and use the hobbits when they're already coming to me. Right, right. 
I like your idea of taking a banner effect over a banner to mitigate that penalty. I didn't really think of that. Even though its banner effect only affects hobbits, it is six inches, so it's not bad. I, I think this one could actually win certain games. I think you would do really well in like objective holding ones because you have so many models that you could just pair off into to like different areas of the board. But because it's hobbits, you know they they're kind of just they die so easily and they don't have it's just very hard to play competitive with them but then at the same time you know you do have a lot of tricks and multiple threats in the list so i think i would go like a a a pretty strong hero of fortitude there are certain armies that will just not be able to to handle your numbers but then i can also see you maybe struggling against uh certain more competitive lists as well so can i just say that like I really think this is underestimated because it is kind of a shooting list, but I do have 18 elf spears. So this would be able to match up against most battle lines. And we're talking fight five hobbits with aura of dismay right in the middle. So I don't think they're a slouch in combat, to be honest. But yeah. And I would have some plus one to wounds in the front as well. So, you know. So the way you would deploy is you would deploy your militia and, and your sheriffs in the front and then and then your spearmen behind and then try to wrap around and surround with the rest of your hobbits yeah yeah and then like the core middle would be that i would actually think it would be quite tough because i would have the banner effect reroll mm-hmm. and aura of dismay so i i i don't think you're gonna do a lot of wrapping around with this list it's more gonna be like intentionally sending hobbits by themselves around the flanks just because they move so slow. Like I, I never realized it until I had to face it. It's, if you do like a, a refused flank where you kind of angle your side backwards, it takes the hobbits forever to try and get around it. And then by the time they do, their front line is dead anyway. So I think you'll probably just want to end up using those hobbits to fill in the front line. Because when you lose a fight, like they're, they're going to die. <laughs> Most well, he has two heroic marches in there, in Robin and Wholefoot. He has some mobility. I, I'm, I'm going to move it to a, a Valor. I think you've convinced me with, with your formation that you would go with. I really still really question Hobbits this edition, though. So they're just, they're just so disappointing now. But I think I think the change I would make is I, I might swap Robin for um, Bilbo. But other than that, yeah, it's as good as like a, a Shire list can be in this kind of alliance. Yeah, I... I'm inclined to agree with you. I think the other thing that would be good to do is to drop just one Hobbit and then upgrade a whole bunch more to Sheriffs. Because you do have that little bubble, but it only affects the Sheriffs. And you've only got five in there. So plus, if they die... Plus Robin. Plus Robin. Plus, yeah, plus himself. But still, though, like if people know about that, they'll probably aim for those guys first, right? So I definitely would consider getting like a lot more Sheriffs in there and then max out at least his Warband with the Sheriffs. Yeah, that, that that would definitely be a, make that a lot more solid. And then, yeah, like you're saying, you do have a lot of interesting things with your combat line. Because of the fight five and plus one to win, you're still getting the banner effect in there. Mm. Yeah, and you got Glorfnoss, you still have a fighter. And Band of Brass, quote-unquote, combat beast. I mean... <laughs> Who needs Boromir of Gondor when you got Band of Brass too? He's, he can do some uh, things. Honestly, I see... I think his... <laughs> Oh, he has heroic strength. Okay, so yeah, actually, you, you could set him up to do some damage, honestly. If you um, 
you get some hobbit to not like bonk somebody on the head with a, and stun them or something and then send him in to and then he heroic strengths up then he could probably do a like a little bit like a decent amount of damage for uh for his points but yeah you're, you're mostly relying on just your numbers to do the damage um well and shooting yeah shooting is, is a big thing especially with the throw stones as well as all the bows it is very solid I'm thrown off by the Impossible Alliance, though. I feel like there's a way to do a similar kind of list, and then you just don't need to worry about the uh, the Impossible Alliance. Like, if you just took, I don't know, Mary or Pippin, <laughs> now that I look at it, yeah. I mean, they're a little bit more expensive, but that's probably <laughs> the safer one to do, but it's not, like, a huge deal. I, I, I still think it's probably, like, a valor maybe like a weak valor <sighs> i don't know i'll leave it at a valor yeah yeah I, I mean i will say that mary is probably a strong pick here he adds quite a bit but... yeah get the bre- battling brandy bucks plus you'd get the extra pony movement well vanderburst has the actual horse yeah so the, the horse yeah it, it, is, yeah it is better but then mary adds Similar combat value, not yeah. as good because it's not an actual horse, but like the bonuses that he brings with like the horn, and then giving some of your hobbit strength three is kind of it's kind of big. I mean, okay, wait, no, if you want somebody who's really good at combat, take Pippin, because he rolls failed wounds against monsters and heroes. He's got his own enchanted blades always against heroes and monsters. He's he's ready to duel. It's an interesting pick. I think I'm just gonna jump straight to the conclusion and say I. I... I'll give it a Valor. Okay. And the final list of the day is from Ian. It's a 100-point convenient alliance list. So, yeah, as we alluded to earlier, I'm not sure if I've talked about this whole list before. We don't think I have, but I've definitely mentioned it a lot. So, yeah, this was the the list I took to NOVA 2019. So I'll I'll just uh, get into it. My leader is Glorfindel, and he has Asphaloth in the armor. He's leading three Rivendell Knights with a shield. My second warband is Kirdan. He has four High Elf Warriors with spear and shield and one High Elf Warrior with a banner. Third warband is Arvadui. He has eight Warriors of Arnor in his warband. Fourth warband is Malbeth. He has four Warriors of Arnor, four Rangers of Arnor, and one Ranger of Arnor with spear. And then I have a Captain of Arnor with shield, and he has four Warriors of Arnor and four Rangers of Arnor. So that comes to 800 points, 38 models. 12 bows and 10 might. So basically with this list, I was just trying to make one that was super duper well-rounded. Basically because Nova was any random scenario and you could be potentially facing any random opponents on any kind of list, I wanted to have something that could basically react to anything like that. And I think I did a pretty good, pretty decently with that because my leader can fight. So that covers contests of champions. I have a pretty good ability to win the shooting war because of my auric bubbles and stuff and the bows it's got good maneuverability because i i squeezed in the march and um the knights and the numbers are pretty decent 38 i think is pretty good for 800 points considering i have five heroes and then yeah just glorfindel with a magic resistance means like charles said he scales up really well i did play around with some other versions of this where like i didn't have the captain but then i only ended up at 42 models and i think i preferred having the extra little bit of combat ability the extra like strength four hits in there and then he can kind of act as like a a pseudo tar pit right just because he has the defense seven and the fight five he can go into mid-tier heroes and just stall them a little bit other than that like we've talked about 
Kyrden Glorfindel is great because you can boost to wound rolls um, with Enchanted Blade, so he just gets tons of rerolls. Personally, I think Arvidui might be one of my favorite mid-tier heroes, just because he kind of, at his price range, he has a lot of really, really good things going for him, like the three attacks, he's got strike and defense, and he has a 12-inch standfast just for fun. So he kind of covers a lot of things, and he is definitely like... Oh, he's like number one for just targeting enemy heroes and Glorfindel just smashes things. It's great. I'm going to jump straight into this and just say that I was there 2,000 years ago when this list was played at Nova. And it is really good. I think I've actually played against this list directly, I think. Yeah, it, it took a lot of refining to get here. Do I want one night or do I want three nights? I don't know. Always, always three nights. It was a good pick. It was a good pick. I mean, I love all the hero picks here. You know, I, I think this alliance is really good for what Rivendell needs in an ally, because Rivendell is a low model count list by itself, typically. So to be able to get in another army that has, you know, some pretty decent heroes for their cost, and then solid troops, you know, they're fight for their defense six with shields, so they're not squishy by any means. That way you can really bulk up the numbers of a list that I think normally would only have closer to 30 models. So to get up to that, 38 is really strong. Glorfindel, obviously, I skipped past him. Kirdan boosts all the other heroes in the list, especially Glorfindel, which makes Glorfindel incredibly lethal. You know, you've got the three knights in there, so you do have four mounted models. It does pretty well for your mobility for, for objectives. Malbeth, he's my favorite throwback to what Shamans in the last edition used to be, because you essentially have the the five up fury save that used to exist that I loved so much, and I've seen you make a ridiculous number of saves with it, which is what I used to do with my orc shamans. Can you tell I miss the old fury rule? Oh, um, after years of having to endure that and flipping it on somebody else is just oh, it was good. It was good. It, it's yeah. So you've got a captain which has your, your march. So really, I think it's a really well-rounded list, like you said. I'd be really pleased with this. Collecting Arnor is a little bit harder of the armies to, to currently put together. But if you can put together that kind of alliance battalion to throw them in with Rivendell, they're a really good ally to put in there. I would give this list probably a really high valor. The only reason I don't go to Legend is because I think you've got Glorfindel and obviously Kyrdan can boost the other heroes, but I wouldn't call the other heroes exactly um, highly lethal, but they do well. So I like the list a lot. I both can't wait to play it again because I miss having games, but I also can't wait to never play it again because it's very difficult to play against. I will say it probably is like the most grindy list I think I've ever made. <laughs> It is, because, like, it's got 38 models, which is, you know, it's not amazing for 800 points, but it's really solid for a list that is half Rivendell. You know, you've got Defense 6 just, like, everywhere, with the exception of the Rangers, and then Malbeth just flying around, saving who knows how many wounds. Whenever you're like, oh, I, I got one, he's like, no, you don't. And you have to remember that Ian's 5-plus save is actually... 80% of the time, so it, it's, it's actually <laughs> a lot stronger than you think. Honestly, yeah. I, I think the biggest value from that is just making people sweat so much about calling heroic combats. Because if you have a three-attack hero and they're only rolling three dice, 
you're always panicking like oh god if i get one wound there's a 33 percent chance i'm just not gonna get this and i'm like are you gonna waste more might to try and get more wounds oh it's yeah it's a really big thing to dissuade that yeah when you're halfway through a game and they've already made 10 saves you don't even feel like oh what if they have a 33 percent chance you're like what if i do only one wound and then he's definitely gonna save it because it's the five up yeah so i i guess i've played this list extensively when we were uh training for nova and I would say that originally, when I first saw this list, I wasn't too impressed, just because Glorfindel was the only mounted hero, so I wasn't too scared. But after numerous practice games, like you said, Ian, this is like the grindiest, just slogging list that you'll ever face. It's it's not fun to play against in the least. <laughs> It's like an hour and a half. What? I killed like three guys. Okay. <laughs> you killed only three guys. Okay. Where do we go from there? <laughs> uh. Yeah. It, yeah. Just and then like the the heroes on foot just slowly start racking up the kills, especially like, with a few knights. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I will say that I mean Alex has covered most of the individual profiles here, but I think you do have all the tools to kind of win in any given scenario. And against any given list. And I mean, I think the results speak for themselves. I mean, you placed sixth at Nova. And yeah, you faced a wide variety of lists. And we played a wide variety of scenarios. So it just shows, you know, if you were in a smaller tournament, I'm sure like that's easily like a tournament winning list. So I, I got to give it a legend. I too hate playing this list. The Is, is this a support group now? <laughs> <laughs> Ian, please don't bring back this list. Um, you know, every time I've kind of thought about it since Nova, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, I should bring it out to a local tournament sometime. I want to play it again. Because my Ornor stuff is just sitting there, because I played it so much. And I was like, okay, I need to take a break from this. And now I kind of want to bring it out again. Yeah, I I agree with pretty much everything Richard said. You know, you, you kind of, this list is like as optimized as it can be with this alliance. You know, Arnor is like super points efficient, and then your Glorfindel and Kyrdan combo is just it's just a really good pairing. And I can think of t- like two things that could be potential weaknesses. Obviously, you did well over six scenarios at Nova, so so it's a very good list. But the first one is that I wish there was a second mounted hero. I know it's it's kind of tough when one of one of your factions is Arnor, but it's just like there are certain scenarios where you just need more than one. And or it would make your life a lot easier if you had a second one. And then the other thing is that a grindy list can be good, but then it could also backfire in a way because your army is because it's a good side, so it's all strength three. And while your heroes with enchanted blade can do some damage, your warriors aren't really they're they're kind of just there to kind of shield and and kind of survive, right? And your your strategy with Malbeth kind of supports that as well for your line of warriors are in order to just live as long as possible. I know that you told me after the event that you struggled several times with time. Even like one or two of the games that you won, you felt like you felt the pressure because of um, time issues. And I think going to a tournament, time management is a very big part of the game. And with a grinding list, if you don't have enough hitting power... You could be stuck at an impasse where like you can't kill each other and you end at a draw, or you just don't have enough time to uh, get to the enemy leader or get to an objective. And I think in certain matchups that could be an issue for you, in combination with the fact that you don't have a second mounted hero, it could create some difficult situations for you. 
But I don't think I would dock too many marks for that, just based on um, how well you did at Nova. I think I would still give this a hero legend. But those were just some of my thoughts about um, some of the like potential issues that it, the list has. I would like to make a quick amendment. <laughs> no, no, stop. You're not on. <laughs> no, it's too late. I'm already speaking. <laughs> I think I'm I'm, I'm going to bump it up to a low legend, too. Really. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because when I look at it and you look at what the list does, what it can do, what its weaknesses are, but then you see the results of it just based on what you did with it at Nova. Yeah, it's it's got to be a low legend, I think. Should I scrap your first analysis? Because you're contradicting yourself. <laughs> Alex, I, I saw you threaten you while uh, while Charles was talking. It's OK. You can leave it at Valor. You're safe here. <laughs> it's a safe space. <laughs> um but yeah, Charles, I think yeah, you do you do bring up some really good points and and yeah, this army definitely relies on like getting traps to do a lot more damage. I would say you could put the high elves in front and go two handing, but that never really happened. I usually just kept them around the back just to give them the five five spear supports, which was really good for again yeah. just stopping mid tier heroes. Like yeah. I played against like some fell beasts and yeah, it was just okay. Warrior of Arnor up front, they charge because of the auto pass courage. High off spear support behind. Okay, you have fun dealing with whether you want to spend might to try and get out of that situation. And even if you win the fight and kill, you might not actually do anything. So, yeah, they, they filled their role well. But 100%, yeah, uh, damage is an issue. Going against Smog with this list would probably be, like, the worst matchup. <laughs> There's no way I'd be able to kill him in time. All right, those have been our lists for this week. Um, let's move on to our open topic, which is playstyles. So in today's open topic, we will be talking about types of playstyles in the game. We'll be going into uh, what these playstyles are and what is needed for a certain playstyle to succeed, strengths and weaknesses of each playstyle, and uh, some examples as well. So I think before this episode, we've kind of discussed and we tried breaking down, we tried to categorize common playstyles of the game into different categories and we've narrowed it down to four different playstyles. and i think there are can all agree that there are more than just these types of playstyles, but these are kind of the main ones when you look at a tournament the rosters on a tournament most of the players will have an army that kind of land somewhere between these four categories so the four that we have are rush castle board control and skirmish so the first one is rush which i think the way i would describe this kind of playstyle is an army that tries to deal as much damage as quickly as possible to an opponent and they rely on tempo and burning resources early in order to win and an example of this one would be the riders of theden legendary legion where you know playing it myself a few times this, the main strategy is to call death early and try to um, deal as much damage as possible through hero combats and burning might uh, early on and kind of rely on that tempo and have it swing in your favor early on and win the game from there. Does anyone else have any other examples of a list kind of like this? Oh, yeah. Th this is like 
the hero burnout strategy fits perfectly into this like like you're saying so like even like your list from earlier in the episode yeah it, it slots perfectly into this can't think of anything else off the top of my head right now. Give me a minute. Yeah, I, I mean, I think anything, if you stack up on mounted heroes, and that's a strategy that just opens up to you, uh, it's all about momentum. And, you know, certain gamers would use the term, like, tempo, is you basically just try to run them over, like, right off the bat. And then by the time that the first two turns, first two combats are over, they've lost nearly half their troops. And it's really hard for people to recover after that because they just don't have enough models to tag your heroes after that. So yeah, it's it's just really relying on momentum swings. I would say that an, an army I play quite a bit in 2019, Farharad, could be categorized under this. They rely on that impact hit and the charging uh, to do most of their damage because there's there's quite a few um, war spears in the list as well. I was going to say that one of the requirements of this list is to have a lot of money because you require resources that you can burn for the tempo. So I would say that a list will require might to pull it off and and I guess it would require a hitting power obviously. So either like burly some sort of lance plus one to wound or high strength. Yeah. Okay. So I think. I've got one that I think kind of slots into here, but it's it, so it's like the fiefdoms kind of slots in, but only if you play it in like a certain way where you have um, Axemen of Lost Ark up front, two hand piercing striking, and then you back that up by the pikes behind, because then you just, you have the, the easily wounding and then re-rolls from like four long or whatever, and then you're rolling a large volume of dice. So it can hit hard, but then it'll die fast because it's all like defense five stuff. That's kind of where I kind of see a lot of these lists. Like if they get hit back, they can't take the punch very well. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a good shout out. I mean, I think naturally most of them I'm thinking of right off the bat are the hero heavy ones, but I guess it could work with the troop um, if you have some really aggressive hitting troops. It's just I think it's a lot easier to pull off with heroes because with the hero combat mechanic, you're essentially doubling the amount of combats in one turn, which speeds it up a lot faster. So before we kind of go into like the other four strategies, I guess like how I tend to characterize these as well is these play styles, like they lean either like more like aggressive or like defensive as contrast, or also more micro intensive and also macro intensive. So I think for like a Riders of Theoden, it is very, very aggressive. And I think most rush lists are very aggressive. But then on the micro versus macro scale, the Riders of Theoden, because it's like more hero heavy, it takes like individual control of these models and you can't screw that up. So it's very micro intensive. Whereas like the fiefdoms list that Ian talked about, it, it is very aggressive. But because you have a lot of models in the fiefdoms list, you, you're closing out on a horde list. It leans towards the macro intensive. Yeah, going on. Yin's example, I guess armies that like hit pretty hard and that have pretty low defense can also be categorized like like giant spiders, hunter orcs, stuff can, like that. Yeah, you can almost put the uh, Harad list in there with the betrayer and like a lot of the um, African guard. Maybe that's low defense, but it's got a lot of the numbers and just by volume of dice, it can hit really hard. Yeah, it depends how you play uh, Serpent Horde. It's Serpent Horde is pretty versatile. You can play it in a lot of different ways. 
but yeah for sure it's definitely not um, like the most far over on this kind of example but it definitely leans into this kind of yeah stuff. i yeah i think um corsair reavers might be closer to that that side but yeah that, that's a good uh, shout out if you give them like axes and stuff so yeah 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 so just to wrap up the first category let's talk about strengths and weaknesses of this play style so i know that one of the strengths of this play style is that it can catch your opponent off guard early on. And in my experience, I think that the good games I've had with an aggressive army is the opponent, if they, within like the first two turns of combat, if they misplace their leader or they misplace a hero, it can punish them really hard. And once the momentum swings your way, you know, you already know that you're going to win the game. You could just tell if you're going to win a game really early on. Yeah, to me, that's one of the strengths. I totally agree, 100%, because I, I think I lean towards this play style, and what you say is really true, is the main strength is capitalizing on your opponent's mistakes, especially early on. Like, if in the first turn before combat, or the first turn in combat, if there's any positional mistakes, you could take out their leader and then just clean up afterwards. It, it doesn't even matter what happens after the second turn of combat. Yeah, it's it's one of those type lists that I've seen, and I think we've talked about a few times in this episode. Just the idea that you send them in first turn, and if things go according to plan, you wipe out a quarter, a third of your opponent's army, and from there, being on the other side of that, recovering is really difficult, almost impossible. If you haven't done any damage to your opponent, but they've taken a quarter of your army, being able to stop it just gets harder as the game goes on because you really need that next turn, you need the next move, you need charges, and if you have lost enough models, you don't have the resources to do that anymore, especially if, what Richard said, if you lose a big hero in that first turn because of a misposition, and that strike happens, oh, it's just absolutely devastating. I think the biggest weaknesses for this kind of list is, there's two main ones that I can think of, is like if you come up against another list that's similar to yours, but can hit harder than you, then you're kind of in trouble. You might just crumble faster than any other kind of list, right, under that kind of pressure. The other thing is something that can take the hit. So I guess kind of like my novel list, like that kind of a thing where, like, it can just absorb that hit, maybe lose a few guys, and then just kind of grind you back down. Or even just something like Dwarves, where there's just tons of high defense stuff, and eventually, once you run out of might and stuff, your damage output's going to fall. It's going to drop off, and they'll still be there just killing you guys whenever uh, they can win a fight. I just want to jump in with the dwarves thing. Like, I agree with the counter for this aggressive list is, like, the, the castle or defense list. But I wouldn't say dwarves, just because I've had experiences against Alex's dwarves. And the reason being that the dwarves are very slow-moving, so it's easy to outposition them, and you can take out their key targets fairly easily. Especially when it's, like, a Kazadun kind of list. Yeah, I think I think Iron Hills doesn't play like other other dwarves, but I was thinking more like Iron Hills. Yeah. The other weakness, I don't know if this is one Ian was going to bring up, but rush lists and aggressive lists aren't as forgiving, especially later on in the game. So if you're playing like the long game, uh, let's say like a scenario where it's like a one or two end condition, a low defense list, like a glass cannon kind of list, good luck because. Every turn, you're going to be sweating and hoping that you roll that one or two. Especially once you break, it's very, very tough. And your chances of defeat just goes up every turn after the first few turns of combat, I would say. Yeah, the only other minor thing I was going to touch on is this is kind of like 
if you're going the hero route for this, it is very subject to getting diced. Like, if you just end up blowing a lot of your resources earlier to boost dice rolls to try and, like, get hero combats off and stuff, you can, like Charles was saying, you can really suffer in the late game. And I think it's a lot harder to recover from that kind of thing with the style of, or at least the hero-heavy version of this, like, kind of playstyle. Okay, the second playstyle is the castle playstyle. And when I think of this playstyle, I think of several characteristics that they might have. So usually it would be a, a higher defense it could be like a higher defense, like shield wall kind of list where their main strategy is to form like a long defensive line and grind out the enemy. Or it could be one that's really like shooting focused that relies on the enemy coming to them and fighting on their side of the board. So like, I guess your typical infantry based men or elf armies. And, and, and I guess you can include siege weapons in there. If an army is like, they have like their battle line and then they have like a siege weapon just to force the enemy to come to them. That's what I kind of think when it comes to um, castling. Are there any other characteristics I'm missing? I think hobbits kind of fit into this because they just generally have so much shooting and so many like numbers to kind of like absorb the hits that they get shot back. So it doesn't really, they're just going to sit there and pelt you and pelt you and pelt you and pelt you and force you to come into them. I think hobbits used to be. I don't know if they are now because they're only 18 inch bows. So most of the time you're still going to have to move up and they only move four. I think they might be more of the next play style uh, where it's about board control. While I think their shooting is still pretty good, I think it's hard to be the one to castle with 18 inch bows and defense three line with no spears. Yeah, that's a fair point. So Rangers of Athelion fit perfectly into this. And then I'd say maybe even um, Defenders of Helm's Deep, too, because they're forced to be an all-infantry force, and they have the extra range on their bows and stuff, right? Yeah. I guess if you see people play, like, pure Lothlorien or pure Rivendell, and it's, like, mostly infantry, typically it'll be this kind of composition. Yeah, and I mean, to speak on Charles's other point, it's not necessarily only maxing out bows. Like, if we think about Iron Hills, they're a pretty defensive list, like, they have the defense eight shield wall and like it's just impossible to crack and i mean they can get crossbows and they can get a ballista to kind of force the enemy to come to you but even if you don't have those things once the lines clash you're basically just hammering against the other line and they have enough killing power to sort of grind through the enemy line because they do have dane but if it is like a 800 points game one big hero is not going to be able to single-handedly like break the opponent. So you you are relying on your shield wall to kind of grind through the enemy fodder. Yeah, I think Ian's list this week is a good example of uh, of this as well. Now that you mention the word grind, 100%. I just to Richard's point on the Iron Hills, I'm leaning that way too. But I think I would stipulate you need to have the ballista in there because that basically forces your opponent to come to you. So then you can be defensive. Yeah. No, I think Iron Hills probably the best example currently. The defense eight shield wall and their ability to have the crossbows and the ballista makes them a pretty good castle type force. I think Minas Tirith can also do that with a shield wall at defense seven because um, you can get quite a few troops in there, standard troops, and they can become very difficult with uh, good positioning to crack through. They've also got the Avenger Bolt Thrower, too, which 
if anything is going to make your opponent come to you, it's a massive mechanical crossbow that throws rapid-fire volleys at you. So some uh, strengths and weaknesses of this playstyle? Okay, so biggest strength I can think of for this is it kind of gives you, personally, a lot of control over the game. Because you're, you're basically dictating when combat happens and under like what circumstances, right? If you're playing a kind of list like this. Which can generally lead to your favor, right? If you're fighting an enemy on good terms and you're dictating everything from there, that basically kind of gets you the tempo. It's kind of like a way of getting tempo, I guess. Which is kind of weird. Don't think about that too hard. <laughs> I will say its biggest weakness, though, is kind of the inverse of that, because that's very scenario-dependent. If you play this kind of a style on, like, a domination kind of a match, you can get into trouble, where in the late game, you just, you're forced to run out to try and get objectives to catch up, even though you've broken your opponent, probably. You can easily end up in a situation where you don't have a lot of objective control. Or board control, for that matter. Like Richard mentioned earlier, outmaneuvering your opponent. Dwarves make it difficult because you only have the movement 5. That's when I find it becomes really difficult, just because while they're good defensively, when it comes time to run out and secure objectives, you have to give yourself time, and it can be really difficult to manage that aspect of the game. I mean, dwarves aren't the only castle playstyle. There are quite a few, especially like the shooting ones, but I think they all have the same weakness is the mobility. So yeah, like you said, the dwarves lack the movement capabilities, obviously, but then stuff like the Rangers of Hithilien also struggle to kind of break out and get to places where they want to go. So I think mobility and objective scenarios would definitely be a weakness of theirs, whereas their strength, like Ian said, is definitely controlling the pace of the battle and, you know, picking your spots. So, yeah, you, you do have a lot of control in the scenarios like To the Death or like Lords of Battle. Yeah, so like the more fighty ones. I think depending on the army list, quite a few of the castle lists have access to good cavalry, you know, like Rivendell, for example. But if the playstyle, if you're going with that playstyle and you're kind of sitting back, then, you know, you can have these good options, but you're still not going to be favored in like a like a domination. I also think that this another weakness is um, certain scenarios that forces you to start apart or start really close to the enemy. So a lot of these kind of castle lists, they, they do well when you're grouped together, where like all your heroes are close. They all benefit from the same heroic actions. All your bows are, are close. And, like, the heroes are playing off each other in, like, a small area of the board. So when you have, like, hold ground or you're forced to start close, like a capture and control, kind of takes away your advantage of using the shoot phase, shooting a few volleys at the enemy. Like, you might not be able to get as effective shooting in. And also Maelstrom just being apart. Your heroes aren't together. Uh, your Kyrdan might be, like, on the other side of the board of where your general is. So things like that, you're definitely not at your strongest in those scenarios. I, I don't think this is a very forgiving play style. Like, it takes a lot of time to learn it to do things the right way. Like, we're, we're saying, like, with the objectives and stuff, like, with Maelstrom, you have to learn how to play around that and make it work for you. And then, like, with the objective scenarios, if you're sitting back and shooting, 
you have to learn at one point in like the kind of game cycle when you have to just leave those positions. You, have to, you just have to run out and fight the enemy. It, it can be very hard to find that point sometimes. I, I would kind of disagree here in the sense that this is a good beginner list to kind of construct and play because it is on the easier side to build. And like the opposite of the rush list, you can soak up a lot of weaknesses. Like if you have a couple guys fall and die, you can kind of absorb the damage and you're not too afraid of like breaking. Um, you're usually pretty uh, strong in that. And then you kind of learn positioning too. If you have a really strong shooting contingent, and then you force the enemy to kind of run at you. So it's a lot easier to make decisions that way because pace of the game is slower. But where I do agree with you is that to kind of take it to the next level and win tournaments, you really do need to find how to capture those objectives and to move your army at critical time. So I think it's like an easy to pick up kind of list, but it might be harder to do extremely well. Yeah, I agree with Richard on that one. It's definitely a forgiving play style that I see a lot of players, when they get into the game, they'll play similar like infantry blocks with uh, with archers, and that's kind of like roughly what this play style is about. The next one is board control. So I think the first thing that jumps into my mind is horde armies and armies that have the numbers to cover key areas of the board and kind of control and prevent their opponent from going into specific areas and they kind of dictate where the battle is and where their enemies are allowed to go. These kind of armies are typically really good at capturing objectives and the objective scenarios and the scenarios where you have to run off the boardage. A good example would be last episode we talked about Goblin Town. So that I think is a perfect example of a board control army where they just have so many models at their disposal that they can send to any point on the map that they need to. Yeah, just to add on, Goblin Town is the perfect example because not only do they have probably the most horde list in the game, but they also have units with the capability of appearing anywhere on the map, which adds to the board control. So this is an extremely macro-intensive list because it doesn't really matter what you really do with individual units. I mean... The Goblin King and Golem combo, you kind of have to control that a little bit. But honestly, you just throw your units forward. I've, I've even seen people bring them on trays and just push like 20 units forward at the same time in the move phase. Like you, it really doesn't matter. So yeah, it's, it's very macro intensive. I think this is especially useful if you have one or more either heroic marches in the list, or if you have a war drum. I see this with Mordor lists that I've put together, where I have quite a large number of orcs, and then I'll have a Guritz, or I'll have just a generic captain, Mordor troll with a drum, just because it affects the whole army, in a quite a large bubble. With numbers like that, with additional movement, you're really able to roll forward, spread out, get to everywhere that you need to be quite quickly. And it can really make your opponent struggle to cover everything they have to in objective games like Domination. So I'm, just try- I'm trying to think of some examples of lists. The one, the first one that came to mind was like a Riders of Rohan list, where you just have like a lot of Royal Guard and the Riders, and not you're not so focused on the heroes, you just focus on having like 20 to 30 cavalry models. 
and that just gets you the board control because you have so many models that can move so fast. And then the other one that I was thinking of now that Alex kind of mentioned war drums, I'm thinking maybe Easterlings kind of slot into this. Not like, they're not like completely this kind of playstyle, but they do kind of fit in because like almost every single Easterling list you see will have a war drum. And then it'll have some casual you can move around on like pretty fast. So kind of. I think Easterlings you can play either board control if you take more like cataphracts or if your focus is to control the board with their cheap war drum. But they can also play castle as well just because they're high defense and they have the ability to grind mm-hmm. if you wanted mm-hmm. to. It's it's kind of like yeah. they use their board control aspect to get into the, their defensive positions really quickly where you wouldn't expect yeah. it, and then they go to the defensive. Yeah, that's 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 good. Yeah, and, and, and like like we said at the beginning of this discussion, an, an army can have a mix of playstyles as well. It's, they're not just like, it doesn't have to be on the extreme end of one necessarily. And then what Alex brought up, like, Certain factions, they have so many models at their disposal that they can play kind of any playstyle they want, and Mordor is a great example. A Mordor can definitely play uh, board control. I'm just thinking of lists with cheap warriors. So like we said before, Hobbits, I think Sharky's Rogues can also play board control. I think they're pretty much bad at everything else, so (laughs) their strength is to just control the board. Yeah, they're kind of forced into that with those spear supports. They just they just kind of end up everywhere. <laughs> I haven't played it myself, at least not this edition. But the idea of Maher's Marauders with the Isengard Scout drum comes to mind as well, just because they are move six typically become move eight, march with the drum, and essentially just roll across the map back and forth constantly. They can hit all their objectives. I think I've seen it a few times, but I haven't played it myself. Uh, Lurtz's Scouts, the Legion, yeah, I think that's that's the... Or, or the other one, the Uglick one, I think. They're both pretty good, decent shouts for that, yeah. So we discussed the the strengths of this one being really good at like certain scenarios and just controlling the board, controlling where your enemies will be or is allowed to go. As for weaknesses, I think one of the weaknesses is that... It's probably not an easy one to play for beginners, especially if if you're kind of focused on objectives. And I don't know, I think that it takes a player with experience of like positioning and like control zones and kind of measuring distance between point A to point B uh, of like where to move models. I think it takes a bit of experience with that. And I think a more novice player might not know how to control so many models at once and focus on so many areas of the board at once. Would you guys kind of say you're giving up a bit of tempo for the extra board control? Your opponent knows kind of what you're going to do. You're going to, like, you have to get up there and get in the face. Does that does that kind of make sense? Like, oh, kind yeah. Of... I don't think they use tempo at all. I agree with Charles. I think the way that you have to think is you have to think very big picture and kind of how the game will progress. And also, like, very good time management. So, you know, you want to be holding the objectives at the right time. And I think that's part of the weakness and difficulty as well, is you really don't want to break. Because you are holding the objectives a lot of the time, you breaking, you start to lose control of a lot of these key areas, especially with most horde armies have on the lower side of courage. So that's usually their weakness. I mean, given something like Goblin Town, it's near impossible to break. But if you do, if you are able to break them, then I think that will lead to their uh, 
downfall. And the final playstyle is skirmish. So when I think of a skirmish list, there are a certain set of strategies that that come to mind. Uh, one is hit and run. So if you guys remember last edition Rohan, the way you play them was you would uh, ride around with riders and you would soften up your enemies with throwing spears and bows until it just became annoying because they can't reach you and charge you and you're just constantly shooting and then moving away and then only charging in once you feel like you would be able to break the enemy. So I think those kind of lists I would categorize under skirmish where they kind of pick their moment to fight and charge in. And can you think of an army in this edition that kind of does that? I guess like a all Rivendell Knight army, but I don't I haven't really seen it this edition. Uh, yeah, the first thing that came to mind was like throwing weapon lists. So like... <laughs> If you're a fan of uh, Foot Rohan like I am, then that's the kind of thing that would slide into this for sure. Or Wood Elves, if you're taking a lot of throwing daggers. I I wouldn't say Corsairs, though, because they, they have the throwing weapons, but they just bulk out in the numbers and they just hit you. Maybe Dwarf Rangers, that kind of a list, kind of, uh, yeah, I could see that. I think um, a list that I've played is the Thranduil's Halls by All Rangers. So... It kind of is a bit defensive, a bit like a castle list, but at the same time, they can't really grind because they're all defense three, and there's not that many of them. All you have to do is really close the distance and get into combat with them. So I find that they tend to, you know, more like hide in the woods and then like try to hit and run kind of tactics. Yeah, so that's probably in between like a skirmish and a castle. Trying to think of another example. Grimhammers? I wish Grimhammers. That's not not really, because you don't take all Grimhammers in the list, right? You're going to have the Spear Supports, and it's just kind of like a bonus. It just kind of extends their threat range, rather than them playing that kind of like hit-and-run style. They're still going to close in immediately on you, right? Okay, yeah, it does give them a bit of skirmishing, yeah. But it's not like... I don't think I'd swing it very deep into that kind of a play style. I think... The, what is it? Is it the Rangers of the North list? So the all-hero list, um, it starts off a lot of skirmish. And I guess it really depends how you play it, too. But obviously, there's people who tend to play the more rush style and try to chain hero combats with them. But I think definitely at the beginning of the game, you, you definitely want to play more skirmish style and take advantage of your shooting. Would you guys also say that Cond as a faction is skirmishy? They don't really have a bow line, their defense is kind of low, and they're kind of relying on like their mounted bows, and their chariots can kind of charge in and then kind of swerve around and hit another flank. I kind of see them as a skirmish force. Yeah, I could see that, because like, they have the chariots that hit really hard, but like you said, they're trying to like get those chariots into the right position to be able to have a really big impact, and to do that, they have to kind of like pull people out and skirmish, like pull, shoot a little bit, run away, try and pull people mm-hmm. out. So yeah, 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 I think that's lost yeah. in there decently. And their cavalry are kind of, they all have bows, they have 100% bows, but they're they're kind of softing up close in combat. They're only defense four, so. So for strengths of a skirmish list, I guess I would say that I think the strength of this is you, you're very, very annoying, and you make the other person want to stop playing the game. <laughs> well, I think it, it kind of gives you a combo of tempo and board control, in a sense, because 
I guess it's, it's, it's all about, like, the potential of threat, right? Like, oh, if you come into this part of the board, I'm going to shoot you a whole bunch. You're going to try and fight me. I'm going to run away and I'm going to shoot you more. Or I'm going to charge in, get a few kills, and move out, right? So it kind of combines the two. I think there's just certain people that really like this play style. For a time, I really enjoyed playing Grey Company in, in, in this kind of way. Kind of just shoot my enemy and then kind of retreat to, like, a, a wooded area and just, like, fight at choke points and stuff. That was for a while that I really liked playing that style. And I think a fun play style for someone is a good en- enough reason to, for someone to play it as well. And, and I think going to weaknesses, again, I think it's probably not an easy kind of style to play because it might not be the most forgiving if you don't pull off the hit and run well or the maneuvering that is required with a skirmishing play style. If you make a wrong move and you get trapped somewhere, or if your opponent picks up the pace and catches you full on before you're ready, you can be in a lot of trouble. I think um, these lists tend to be very, very micro-intensive, so that also makes you very prone to mistakes, especially in a list like you said, Charles, The Great Company, when it's all hero and you have limited amount of models as well. Every single mistake will probably result in you losing a model, and every model counts in these kind of armies. Like, you, you can't afford to get caught out in the open, and then your guys get killed. Like, you, that just doesn't work for this. Micro warbands. I think micro warband lists, I know it's not very popular anymore, but they probably fit into this really well. Like the uh, the old edition one that the Green Dragon uh, does the, the all the Urukai captains kind of thing. Where you just have like tons and tons and tons of like mid-size, low mid-size heroes, and then you're skirmishing. You're doing a lot of like interesting heroics and stuff with that. That that would probably slots in here. What do you guys think of that? Well, I think smaller warbands with more drops definitely could play into that, just because you would have multiple heroes and small groups of troops everywhere. So it would be difficult for your opponent to counter-focusing on all of them, and if you can alternate your charges and movements in an efficient way, you could definitely play that style. So after breaking down play styles into these four categories, I actually like what we did with this discussion, because it's a common question where someone will just ask you, you know, what's your favorite army in the game? What's your favorite faction? And I find that a lot of times I have trouble answering that question, because for me, it's more about what kind of playstyle I enjoy, rather than what army. Because um, certain armies, you'll try different things, but at the end of the day, you're looking for other armies that have that kind of similar style a lot of the time. That's not to say that we only play one way or one playstyle, but there's certain ones where we know we, we excel at or we enjoy. And I think that is a better way to give an answer. Like, for example, for me, I like lists that are more on like the micro end. I like lists that are more more rush, but also more like individual model specific lists. So those are the ones that I would lean to when I'm looking for a new army to try. Does your army pick your style or does your style pick your army? I think that's actually a really good question because I feel like once you've played enough and if you have more than one army, you will often change your style based on the army that you play. So if you enjoy multiple armies, I feel like a lot of players will eventually mold their style when they play that army around what works best. Or you just do what I do and try to play castle with everything. (laughs) 
Max Bowes with literally everything. <laughs> Can we just say and rename it and not say Castle, just say Ian style? <laughs> whatever Ian's doing, that's what it is. I don't know what he's doing, but it's whatever that style is. That's what's happening right now. But yeah, just kind of like on on that aspect of things, I think it's definitely fun and I would highly recommend to people to if you're really stuck in a one way of playing try another way you might not win a lot of games but you're definitely going to have a lot of fun experimenting and just seeing what you can do with other things like I'm not a big fan of doing these like super hyper aggressive lists but every time I've messed around with trying like the all hero burnout I've always had fun and really enjoyed the games so I think it's definitely worth a shot to give other style play styles a shot. I feel like the longer you you play the game, the more things you'll try. Because I know when I first started, I wasn't really like, oh, I like to have this play style because I didn't know what a play style was. I was like, I like Isengard. That was it. And then after that, that's when I picked up Mordor, learned how they played, and that's when you kind of learn about what type of playstyle you like, but I feel like in the beginning it's really more about what army you enjoy. Alright, I think that has been our discussion. Thank you everyone for listening, and uh, look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast.